The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, February 7th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, Dateline, Florida, where the Madeira City Commissioner has tongues wagging. Spectrum 9's Josh Rojas reports. Madeira Beach City Commissioner Nancy Oakley sat on the dais Tuesday night for a workshop. On a different dais in Tallahassee, Nancy Oakley, the Florida Commission on Ethics upheld a final judge's ruling on Friday that Oakley was guilty of exhibiting inappropriate behavior. Okay, okay, it's 15 seconds in, Josh. Get to why. Now Oakley has to pay a fine and receive public discipline from Governor Ron DeSantis. And recommends a public censure and reprimand and civil penalty of $5,000. Okay, okay, but the tongues are wagging thing, it needs to pay off a little quicker. Say none all in favor. Oh, you're gonna include the nine. whole vote? Right. Get to the nutcraft, Rojas. Motion carries. That ethics complaint was filed by former city manager Shane Crawford, who says in 2012, Oakley drunkenly grabbed his crotch and licked his face in front of several witnesses. Yes, Commissioner Nancy Oakley is a confirmed face licker. From the Adam's apple to the forehead, the complaint alleges. And yeah, the crotch thing, that, that, that's not good either. But this isn't the first time that she licked a face, according to the victim. Nancy Oakley, quote, has a habit of licking men that either she was attracted to or thought she had authority over. Notice the plural, men, not man. She is at least bilingual. Nancy, get your tongue. But the question is, would Josh Rojas finally get some answers or would the cat have Nancy's tongue? We tried to ask Oakley about that incident, but she didn't want to talk. Nancy, what's your response I, to the I ethics commission? I final have judgment. No you lick Shane Crawford's face. What's your response to that? This time, Oakley held her tongue, possibly because her political underlings were not there to hold it for her. On the show today, Green New Deal or No Deal, that is the spiel. But first... This coming up is one of those interviews where I read a book and it was clever and it was compelling and it was full of ideas and it was short, it was short, it was essays. And I said, you know, if the author is half as engaging in real life as she is on the page, we will have what is called a conversation. And I can report that Elisa Gabbert is actually 120% as compelling a conversationalist as she is a scribbler. And therefore, we all benefit you, I and her. Elisa Gabbert, author of The Word Pretty. Thomas Hobbes criticized life as nasty, brutish, and short, then I shall praise Elisa Gabbert's new book, The Word Pretty, as engaging, puckish, and short. And those are all good things. Gabbert is a critic, a poet, a critic of poets, a poet of criticism. She thinks in words in a way that I could only describe as, and I was working on this description a long time, a good way. Others have described, you ready for the, you ready for this? As smart, philosophically dexterous, capable of showing the self to be a fetish object of its own, and also a refractive subject of Lacanian devotion as a mirror which doesn't so much distort as endlessly reveal, like the panopticon eye of a camera. Hello, Elisa. What is the subject of that sentence? <laughs> um, I I couldn't tell you. I, I was that from a review of a poetry book, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yours, yours. Uh, the, it was uh, the rumpus. Yeah, praising I, the self unstable. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was years ago, but I I do remember the Lacanian bit. Yeah, did you have to look it up like I did? <laughs> 
Um, you know, I, I never really remember what it means, to, yeah. to be honest. It's either a lacuna or laconic or so like something terse, but also miasmic. I don't know. <laughs> so the book, I haven't read books. I haven't read any books before this. I haven't read your books or your poetry, but this book is very much about words. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple observations there in there I'd like to talk to you about. Okay. One is you like forwards, the foreword of a book or the introduction of a book more than a book. Uh, is there a difference between introductions and forewords as you see them? Do you like introductions as much as forwards is what I'm driving at? I like all front matter yes. um, and in matter. Any Anything that's just kind of extraneous but not extraneous to the book. So I love indexes. Um, I don't think I talked about indexes at all in that essay. Um, but one of my poetry books actually has an index. Oh, that's so good. And I'm obsessed with it. I love indexes. And um, I think part of the reason I like introductions is because they often kind of have all the best parts of the book in them. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like a like an unspoken TLDR. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I can cheat sometimes if there's, you know, some classic that I'm supposed to have read. Um that I haven't, I can just read the introduction and then I can talk um, confidently and semi-intelligently about it just from having read the introduction. I really love translator's notes too, just because they have good trivia in them. I, I agree. I agree with the introduction. The author comes out and says, here's what I was trying to say. And then you say to yourself, now I know what you were trying to say. I don't have to wade through these next 300 pages. You've said it. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> so mm-hmm. some, some books you read the whole book and some books you only read the introduction. My question to you is, have you ever thought you'd go into a book doing that thing you do, which is only reading the introduction, and the introduction was so good that it sucked you into the rest of the book? Um, I mean, if a book is really great, I'll usually kind of forget about the introduction. But the books that I remember for their introductions, I usually only read the introduction. <laughs> so what are some of them? Um, so the Tao Te Ching is, is um, one example. I have an edition um, with this introduction by Jacob Needleman. I don't know anything about Jacob Needleman except that he wrote the introduction to this edition of the Tao Te Ching, and it's like mind blowing. Like it kind of changed my conception of what a book is um, and like what language does. <laughs> but then when I tried to read um, the whole Tao Te Ching, I got I got really bored by it. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> it just wasn't for me. <laughs> I heard this on a podcast too that in the beginning of publishing, the idea of an index was looked at as either cheating or dangerous, or giving away the store for free. There was just a lot of debate about having indices. Yes, it was was seen as this like quite dangerous thing analogous to, you know, the kind of panic over the dumbing down of the media today. Oh, because you could just read the one part you wanted to read. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to read the whole book. Is that it? Exactly. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to, like, <laughs> write a scene or a one-act play where there are people debating whether to have an index. That's fascinating. I've never heard that before. What do you like about indices? Yeah, I use them to cheat. Like, especially, uh, I, I just finished a second book of essays um, in December, and it was very research-heavy. And I rarely read the books that I was using for research from cover to cover because I just didn't have time. Mm. So often, um, I would, you know, I would know that a certain writer had written a little bit about something and I would just read, you know, the few pages or whatever <laughs> that were relevant to my project and definitely not the whole book. So I guess that's why, um, yeah, I'm, I'm history's greatest monster that they were afraid of when they introduced the index. Uh, so I, I just love, <laughs> your book was one of those that 
was both, yes, I've thought of that, and I've never thought of that, and they were both satisfying to me, um, <laughs> which should be, should be the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> you write about how sometimes, you know, brevity is, I, I do think we rightly praise brevity, but when things are brief, I have found we tend to think that they're more uh, profound. And there can be, in fact, profundities located inside long, scrambling parts of prose. But it's much less likely that we'll recognize it as such. And my question to you is, I wonder if you think that that is because of how we've been trained as readers, or is it just something innate in our species? Like, why do you think that is? I think it might also be something about feeling like you can hold it in your mind all at once, um, which I don't I don't write fiction, but I, I've heard people say that that's the main difference between a short story and a novel when you're when you're trying to write it is that you feel like you can contain the short story in your mind. You can think about it all at once and see the whole arc of it. And it's much harder to do that with a novel. It just gets away from you and you can only see so much at once. I don't know. There's probably you're more literate than I. A novel or two, which takes place, like the plot is very short. It takes place in a very condensed frame, you know, maybe within the span. I love books like that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. the author is able to hold that in his or her head easier. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read um, Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker? I've, I, I don't think so. It's no. a, <laughs> it's a short novel. Um, where it's basically just kind of this guy's internal monologue while he's, I think he's maybe writing an escalator the whole time. I haven't <laughs> read it in a long time. Um, but he, he's just like, it's definitely supposed to take place over, um, if not like an hour, like just a few minutes. I can't remember. But it's just his mind wandering and associating. And um, it starts off with, I think he needs a new shoelace. And he's trying to figure out what those little things at the ends of shoelaces are called. <laughs> like, who invented them? They're called aglets, and, aren't they? Are they? Yeah. <laughs> the plastic tips? something. Yeah, ag- yeah. Aglets, and the, <laughs> aglets and inlets. I think inlets are the eyes. I think. I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. I believe I guess, you. <laughs> I guess I'd be a bad reader of this, of this mezzanine novel where the whole thing hinges on what an aglet's <laughs> called. On page three, I'm like, it's an aglet. Hello. <laughs> like an, me reading an Agatha Christie book. They all did it. They all shared the knife. Come on. <laughs> Obvious. <laughs> they always all did it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love books that take over the place of, um, take place over like a weekend or, you know, or it's just like a single party, something like that. I, I think those are great. Absolutely. Um, do you have you ever read a book of quotes? Because I know you're into aphorisms or the idea of aphorisms, but I think also mm-hmm. aphorisms. You ever just plow through a book of quotes? I think I did that once when I was a kid. Yes. Um, we don't ha- we don't own a, a book of quotes currently, but there's a great like party game you can play um, if you have like a Bartlett's familiar quotations, and it's a version of Balderdash where you pick the first half of a quote and everybody tries to guess the end of the quote. Um, you know, just make up a fake complete quote and then you go around and people vote to see which one they think is the real one. Um, oh. It's great fun. I like it even better than, I like it even better than Balderdash. Right. So if, do God, you know what Balderdash is? Yes. Yes. That I know. <laughs> okay. So if God yeah, didn't exist, fun. if God didn't exist, we would have to buy him a new Chevrolet. 
something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's better if it's not such a famous quote because then, you know, everybody can't guess the real one. Yes. Stretching, um, the, stretching the familiar part of the Bartlett's fil- familiar quotation title. Right. Bartlett's unfamiliar quotations. But there is always something weird. I mean, and I read it as a kid, too, and it got me into a couple of the authors who were who were quoted extensively. Ambrose Bierce, who I don't think I would have read. Does anyone mm-hmm. read or does do people just read quotes by him <laughs> or about him? Anyway, I wouldn't have even known of this guy. Same with H.L. Mencken, people who were dominating the quote pages. And then I began thinking to mm-hmm. myself as I began writing, I wonder if the quotes just come or if they write around the quote, if they know they're leading up to it. And I have come to believe, especially with those people, that it's intentional. That they know how to lead you to the quote and that much is built around the quote and that the quote is, even if it comes in the middle of a paragraph, which isn't usually the case, you know, the quote is supreme and everything else is in the service of the quote. There are some exceptions, you know, people pulling a line from a speech that the uh, that the politician or whoever didn't intend. But I think that when quotes become famous, it's usually because the author intended them to become famous. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's somebody like Oscar Wilde, I I can't imagine that he didn't have a knack for knowing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Like, people are going to be saying this for 200 years. (laughs) Right. Um, And he's definitely someone, I've I've never actually read anything, like, at length by Oscar Wilde. I just, you know, know 500 (laughs) single things he said, totally out of context. I want to ask you about uh, How to Be Pretty on TV, which was uh, pretty much about Anne of Green Gables and the TV show thereof and how you realize that the actress playing Anne of Green Gables, well, it turns out she's pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because everyone on TV is pretty. And this is, I think, the greatest flaw with television. And I just, I, I can't tell you how much my girlfriend cannot stand my constant observation of every episode of Friends, which is, yeah, but come on. If you look like that, would you really be that unemployed? (laughs) <laughs> no, you'd have a TV show. You would. And you get a million dollars per episode. We literally have <laughs> one we have one test case about what a person who looks like Jennifer Aniston, what would happen to her in life. And that is what has <laughs> happened to Jennifer Aniston in life. <laughs> and well, what's the difference between that? What's the difference between just someone who looks like Jennifer Aniston and the Jennifer Aniston we know, who looks like Jennifer Aniston but also has Jennifer Aniston skills, which are what? So transcendent? So, like, <laughs> uh, it's obvious she's going to be worth $400 million because of her light comedy chops? I mean, come on. Yeah, I feel like there's this automatic, like, I think I say in the essay maybe that it it sort of breaks the fourth wall whenever somebody calls somebody else in a TV show attractive because it's like, what? Like, (laughs) how can you tell that that person is more or less attractive than anybody else? It definitely didn't used to be that way. Yeah. Shows from the 70s and the early 80s, there were more schlubby people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But movies especially is part of the reason I love movies from the 70s is because there were a lot of average-looking and even unattractive actors. The world on film looked more like the world then. Um, It didn't just look like, you know, one block of Hollywood. So I want to ask you about the idea of uh, just the word pretty itself, which is uh, your last chapter as you meditate upon it. And you named it, well, actually, it's not your last chapter, but one of your last chapters. You love the word pretty. Pretty just meaning kind of beautiful. Why? Um, I guess I, I like it's kind of understatedness. 
as I as I say in the essay, I really love when men say the word pretty. It mm-hmm. always seems kind of unexpected. I I like it as a modifier too when people say pretty good. Like that that's fine. Pretty good is fine. <laughs> we don't we don't have to pretend everything is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I agree. Um, I agree. I yeah, think this is I'm one of the wor- things that are just pretty good. Yeah, yeah. One of the worst aspects of the internet, obviously the toxicity is horrible, but right behind it is just the the emphasis, the great inflation, how everything becomes so amazing mm. and you know, laughing out loud and falling on the floor laughing and all this bullshit. Oh, it's so it's really bad in in book world and like book culture is very inflationary and there's so much hype and really you mean like a mirror which doesn't so much distort as endlessly reveal like the panopticon <laughs> of the eye of a camera? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, that description is perfect. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just I I hate the hype around new things and it just turns me off and I. After I've spent some time on the internet, which is unavoidable, like I have a job where I sit at a computer and I'm on the internet all day, so I can't avoid it. But I just always feel like, ugh, I want to, I want to read something like really old, um, or watch something really old that nobody's talking about. Like I just, I don't get that thing where everybody's talking about something and then I become like obsessed with seeing it or eating it or <laughs> right. reading it or whatever, whatever the, the right way to consume the thing everybody is talking about. Like I just. That doesn't happen to me. I, I feel the opposite. I'm like, I want I want to run far away from the book that everybody's reading or the show that everybody's watching. Right, right. And as an endorser of pretty or things that are fairly good, it doesn't surprise me that these things that are overhyped, which if they were just presented to you as pretty good, would be very satisfying. Actually, what we've done is we've taken a thing which should be a B plus. We've told ourselves that expect an A and we come out of it feeling like a C minus. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so I was going to say that I think in in the book world, it's like, if you're not saying stuff like that, like, this is going to change your life. Nobody pays attention. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we, we painted ourselves into a corner there. So then when you ask friends for blurbs, do you say, but, you know, please keep it toned down? <laughs> Um, no, but my blurbers kept it toned down without me having to say anything. (laughs) The name of the book is The Word Pretty with an introduction by no one and no index. Other than that, I give it four stars. (laughs) Elisa Gabbert, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And now, the spiel. It seems... Like what we're doing as Americans is responding to a president who says things that we know aren't true by backing a tribune who says things that we just wish were true. And we're told we have to be okay with that. Not to be okay is churlish or anti-progressive or even worse. So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez announces an initiative, and all elected officials announce initiatives, there is a movement to say, well, those old rules of checking to see if her facts are right, those old norms of scrutiny, those are, those are traditions from a different world, a bygone era. But by gum, I ask myself, isn't the point of what I do is to be, I don't know, like a watchdog, to have some standards of accountability? No, no, Mike. It's 2019, as Shadi Hamid of the Brookings Institution wrote about Ocasio-Cortez's proposed 70% tax rate in the Atlantic, quote, 
it probably doesn't matter whether it would work. To argue that workability is secondary might sound odd to Democrats. Let me pause this quote by saying yes, or maybe odd to people, to humans who live in the actual world. But but go on, sir. Might sound odd to Democrats, particularly party leaders and experts who have long prided themselves on being a party of pragmatic problem solvers. You know what he's talking about. The elites. The elites who insist that their policies work, the fools. What has working ever done for anybody? Hamid continues, quote, this though could be the most important contribution so far of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the new crop of progressive politicians. The realizations that the technical merits of a particular policy aren't the most relevant consideration or at all relevant So what he's saying is the most important thing that this new crop of progressives contributes is the idea that their ideas don't have to work. What we need are the big swings, the bold proposals, hashtag, hashtags, and of course, the Overton window. I am going to defenestrate myself from the Overton window one day now. Wouldn't it be funny if we found out that Overton and his wife got divorced over an issue of home redesign, and this entire philosophy is just a psychodrama to get back at Rita, who says, no, we can't move that window, won't even consider it. So let me tell you where I am personally on most of the progressives' ideas that might not work. I like socialism, Scandinavian style. A lot of that stuff seems pretty good to me. Doubt that Americans would vote for it, but I take it. So I'm supposed to make a bargain with these progressives who are proposing ideas that go way, way, way beyond what Denmark or Sweden would endorse. And in subscribing to these ideas, what I'm really doing, so the strategy goes, is I'm trying to do a a Overton window play, whereas we get those Scandinavian socialism ideas. So a couple things. One, what if instead of getting the in-between workable Denmark ideas, we actually get the ideas that are actually proposed? Shouldn't we think about that? Mightn't we worry about that? And secondly... Do we now need to adopt a whole new way of thinking and orienting ourselves in the world where we don't actually respond to the substance of a proposal, but we imagine what the intent of the proposer is and then do some mental averaging as to where the proposal might land in the real world if we all pretend that the far out there proposal is really a good thing? This seems insane to me. What I like to do as a journalist and a guy who talks on podcasts is just look at a thing and tell you if it works and if the facts are aligned. So what about facts? What about just getting basic facts right? We can all agree that this is a good thing, right? No, we can't. Future just guest Eric Levitz argues in New York Magazine that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's critique of fact-checking is valid, that is the headline, and he says that the nonpartisan political media does often obscure the moral stakes of policy debates beneath semantical nitpicking. And so we come to the Green New Deal. Global warming, that's a huge moral stake. The arguments undergirding the Green New Deal, well, given the huge moral stake, how could I 
possibly critique the arguments? How could I possibly do anything but nitpick what the details are given the huge moral stakes? And yet I persisted. The Green New Deal resolution is a 10-year plan to mobilize, quote, every aspect of American society at a scale not seen since World War II to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create economic prosperity for all. This resolution, this non-binding resolution that will express a sense of the House of Representatives, would have us convert to 100% renewable energy by 2030, which is to say in nine years because the clock ain't going to start ticking with Trump in office. Now, this idea of getting to 100% renewable by 2030 cites such Stanford professors as Mark Jacobson and Mark DeLucci. And I went and I read their work. And it seems to me extremely unlikely bordering on the impossible. In, th- in fact, I think those professors would agree with that. And I say that because having read their study, what they actually advocate is a conversion to 80% renewable energy, wind, solar, by 2030 on the way to get to a place where we in America use completely renewable energy by 2050. Where are we now, by the way? We're 20%, not even 20% renewable energy. The Union of Concerned Scientists, who are concerned about the environment, that's what they're concerned about, they tout a study that cites the Department of Energy saying that it's technically feasible to get to 80% renewable energy by 2050. And that's if we have all the right policies in place. And that's if most Americans, if not every American, is on board. And if essentially there are no headwinds or whatever headwinds there are, will be harnessed for electricity. So these concerned scientists, they're fairly optimistic scientists. They think we may get to 80% in 30 years. AOC argues for 100% in 10 years, sorry, nine years. And how are we going to get there? By dreaming big. No, I think it is a green dream. And I think that uh, it is. It is. And, and I think that, uh, that all great all great, uh, all great American programs, everything from the Great Society to the New Deal started with a vision for our future. And I don't think that, um, you know, I don't consider that to be a dismissive term. I think it's a great term. Listen, she's unbelievably charismatic. She has a winning affect. She's quite likable. I want to believe her. It's just that the facts and the evidence don't support it. She somewhat answers this critique on her FAQ page about this Green New Deal by talking about other big dreamers who were nitpicked along the way. She writes, when JFK said we'd go to the moon by the end of the decade, people said it was impossible. If Eisenhower wanted to build the interstate highway system today, people would ask how we'd pay for it. Well, guess what? They asked that then, and they should have asked that, and they should ask that now. Paying for things is important. In the old way of thinking where things actually had to work and questioning the accuracy of a claim wasn't a moral failing, it was important at least. Anyway, I did look into this when Kennedy said we'd go to the moon, people said it was impossible. Yeah, I mean, some people, people who think the earth is flat, you know, who didn't think it was impossible? Scientists. The president and uh, his vice president then, LBJ, solicited input from the top minds in their fields. I will read from the NASA archives actual letter from Werner von Braun addressing the question, what about going to the moon? We have an excellent chance. He goes through. We probably won't beat the Russians on getting a transmitter to the moon. We have a decent shot of beating the Russians in other space flight. But then he gets to going 
to the moon. We have an excellent chance of beating the Soviets to be the first landing of a crew on the moon, including return capability, of course. The reason is that a performance jump by a factor of 10 over their present rockets is necessary to accomplish this feat. While today we do not have such a rocket, he's writing this in 1961, it is unlikely that the Soviets have it. Therefore, we would not have to enter the race towards this obvious next goal in SpaceX exploration against hopeless odds favoring the Soviets. With an all-out crash program, I think we could achieve this objective in 1967-68. Then he moves on to the next question. How much additional would it cost? So even back then, the dreamers thinking about the costs. The experts back then were checked on. And the question was, will this work? And once the answer was yes, because the elected officials made sure the answer was yes, then they went ahead. I guess they could have done the thing where they just castigated people with hard, nitpicky questions. So maybe you could argue that giving in to the naysayers will sink us. That's our real problem, that people just think we can't do it. And if Americans got on board, we could get to 100% renewable in nine years. Maybe that's because AOC pretends that almost all Americans are already on board. I know this because in her documents arguing for the Green New Deal, Ocasio-Cortez writes, the Green New Deal has momentum. 92% of Democrats and 64% of Republicans support the Green New Deal. Not 64% of the Republicans I know. In Republican circles, there is one reference in her report that actually does have them unified. It's what the Green New Deal guarantees. It lists healthy food, high-quality health care, safe, affordable, adequate housing, economic environments free of monopolies, and this is the part that caused heads to explode at Morton Steakhouse, quote, economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work. Now, normally, if I saw that, I think it was a Breitbart hoax or Tucker Carlson willfully misrepresenting something. But no, I checked. It's right there. This deal will ensure economic security for all those unwilling to work. So when asked not about the moral urgency of a Green New Deal, but the political reality of getting all Americans behind the Green New Deal, here is Representative Ocasio-Cortez's answer. We are really starting to see that environmental and climate issues are issues that swing voters decide who they're going to cast their vote on. Saying something is true doesn't make it so. There is no evidence that environmentalism is influencing swing voters. It might be nice if it were true, but it's not true. It might be nice if this green dream could become a reality, not meaning by become a reality. I don't mean it would be nice if it would pass Congress, which is true. It would be nice if it would come to pass as policy. It would be nice if we had 100% renewable fuel by 2030 or 2050. But I think it's far-fetched. Call me a nitpicking, naysaying spoil sport. But I say it's quite unlikely that this Green New Deal works. I have hope. And a synonym for hope is possibility. But it is in considering of the possibility that leads me to say that the gap between dream and reality is unable or unwilling to work. And that's it for today's show. If you would like the Gist's newsletter, sign up at slate.com slash gistnews, wherein I will answer a trivia question. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I hope there is an answer to this question. I don't know now. So if someone between now and Saturday, when the newsletter hits, provides me with an answer, then I will convey it to you. And it's this. Besides the United States, is there any other country that chants its initials during sporting events? 
does USA, USA have an equivalent among the fans of any other country in the world? And I'm warning you now, the answer might be no, it doesn't. That'll be in the newsletter if that's the case. What if just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader said in the year 1066 that King Harold was not susceptible to eye arrows? What would we have said to them then? When Slate hired TJ Raphael to be senior producer, no one asked, well, what's her price going to be? The gist, unable and unwilling to twerk. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.